welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. And I want to say, first of all, uh, thank you to our team for uh, leading us in the, the music this morning, and we're going to continue to worship. As we uh, finish our sermon section of this sermon series, Be the Church, with the, the last part of this, Be the Church that Worships. Be the church that worships. And if you are a guest with us today, first of all, we want to say thank you for coming. And we just want to uh, uh, invite you to come back. And you always have an invitation here. But this is the third um, sermon in a series called Be the Church that Worships. Next week, we're going to continue along the same line of, of, of preaching. And the new aspect is going to be Be the Church that is Family. We're going to have a family gathering next Sunday. I want to encourage you to make it a priority to be here, but the, be the church that's family is, is coming to us. And of course, I want to say again, my happy Father's Day to all our fathers and to just say thank you for what you're doing and thank you uh, for being here today, being in church, making that a priority in your family. And happy Father's Day. And my prayer for you today is this. You just have a, a blessed and peaceful day. On the handout I wrote, there's no greater thing a father can teach his family than how to worship. And I want to encourage you to say, you know what, as a father, I'm going to teach my family what it means to, to make God the first priority in your life and to live for the glory of God. And like Kevin said, and I really appreciate him saying this, we are not just singing songs when, as a way to say that's how I worship in life. And just like, again, Pastor Kevin said, it is a lifestyle. And that's what we've been trying to encourage everybody here to do, all of our church members to say, my life is going to be centered upon the glory of God, and that's what it means to live a life of worship. And then when we do that individually, when we come together as a, a corporate body, on, whenever we meet, we will worship. And so that's where we're uh, trying to encourage you to go. And that means that, again, it's seven days a week when you get up tomorrow morning, your words and your actions have to match uh, the, or be the same and have to match up. And if, you, if somebody asks me, what's the key to being a a good dad, I would say, let your words and let your actions match up at home and everywhere you go. You've got to let people in your family know that what you believe has changed your life. We don't have to be perfect. I'm so, that's one reason I love. My mother met, named me after David, and she said, I want this son to be a, a man after God's own heart. And that was her prayer. And that's why she named me David. And so David's always been my favorite Bible character. But plus the, the story of David and Goliath is awesome. But uh, I want to uh, also say I love David because he was not perfect. That's encouraging to us as men and to dads. Sometimes it's overwhelming. You feel like you've got to be perfect, but you don't have to. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And that was after David had sinned. And made some really poor decisions and failures in his life. And so I would encourage dads today to pray a prayer. I mean, if you want to know what, 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 what is the purpose of this sermon, dads, the purpose of this sermon is to walk away at the end of this saying, uh, I, I made a decision today. And I, I made a decision. And really, I made a commitment. And the decision was that I want to be a man after God's own heart. And to pray that prayer. And to say, from this point forward, I'm living for the glory of God. And God, I need you to help me to do that and to, to give me your strength because I'm not man enough to live this life alone uh, and to cowboy up and to be strong enough to be able to make it in life. And that, you know, we, we need to have the, a humble spirit. And that was what David had. And we've seen that David was humbled by the fact that he actually had an error in his theology that, that when he began to think about 
wanting to build a house for God, he really was had a low view of God. We talked about how David was, even though he was had a good intention and good motives, he kind of came to God with this mentality like, God, I need to do this for you because you obviously need a house to live in. Apparently, you don't have the capability to, to build your own house and temple. And if you go back to the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, that was the context. And David's view of God was, I need to do something for you because you need my help. And previously, we found out that the Lord corrected that theology in David. And what, he, what God did and what God's been doing in our church is elevating our views of who God is to a biblical level. We need to have a biblical understanding of who God is And what he does for you, the most important thing in your life is who you believe God is. So we need to have a biblical understanding of God. And David moved from thinking God needs a house to being compelled to worship God as the high and exalted almighty. And this came about really in you don't you can listen to verse 11. It's back in Second Samuel seven, verse 11. The Lord said, I will make a house for you, David. You're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make a house for you. And what David understood in this and what we've again fleshed out in the past was this was basically God saying the gospel is coming to your family and and, and that one of your descendants is going to be the Messiah. And he's going to be a divine human who will reign eternally on the throne of Israel. And David looked forward to the cross, and we look back to the cross knowing it was Jesus of Nazareth that it was the king of Israel. But when David was, and he was already a believer, and as David realized his uh, view of God was being elevated by the gospel as a believer, David began to just say, I want to sit and proclaim your greatness and your Attributes, And it was, in fact, pure and simple worship as David sat before the Lord in humility. So the purpose of this sermon is to do that very same thing. The takeaway today is to be still and know that he is God. And when you see who God is, it compels us to worship him. And so I want to encourage you today to see God in the Bible and to say, this is our God. This is my God. And worship him as a result. And we're going to look at three reasons why we can worship God with passion in just a moment. So I want you to follow with me as I read our text this morning. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 18 through 24. Then David, the king, went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. And again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 23 and 24 are our key texts this morning. Verse 23, and what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you 
and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself, your people, Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, to begin to understand this text and how it relates to us in the year 2019 here in Alabama, we need to understand God's story in the Bible. And the story of the Bible is God's story. It's literally his story, history. And if you begin to understand that the Bible is an, un, is an unfolding and unveiling of who God is, what you're going to see is that there's a, a tremendous amount of continuity in the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God does not change. Sometimes we think the God of the Old Testament is a different God than he is in the New Testament, and that is false theology. God is the same. He is unchanging. And the fundamental continuity all throughout it presents God as a missionary God. The story of the Bible is the story of a missionary God who is coming after people that he created because every single person, including you, is loved and of great value. And he wants to redeem every single person. And God's story in the Old Testament was his plan of redemption through the nation of Israel for the purpose of the Great Commission. Israel was called to the, the, the Great Commission in the Old Testament they were to be the descendants of Abraham who would become a kingdom of priests, it says in Exodus 19, who would establish basically God's kingdom on earth and use that land in Israel as a springboard to go forth and to share with all the nations of the earth who God is and how they can put their faith in the Messiah who was coming. That was God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament. And the Jews never were intended to just hunker down and build a fort and stay inside Israel and keep God to themselves and keep the gospel to themselves. They were saved to be missionaries and ambassadors for the Lord. And their mission was to go and make disciples of all the nations. And in that mission, in the Old Testament, Israel... Through sin in their life and through being self-focused and having idols in their life, they essentially failed. And while Israel still holds a very special place in the economy of God, and there will be a promised restoration of Israel at the end of time, the church today is now the people of God. The church constitutes the people of God today in the New Covenant. So when we look at this text, what we are able to do is take what I call timeless principles from the, the, the words here in this case. And we are able to, to apply those to the church today. For example, when we read in verse 23 that there is one nation on the earth or what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel. We can put the church in there. Whom God went to redeem. And that's the first reason that I really want to worship God today. The principle is, number seven there, the, the reason that we can be passionate about worship every day of our life is number seven. God's unselfishness pursue, pursued you at his infinite cost so that his glory and presence might be experienced. Whom God went to redeem. Key word is, the operative word is the word went. David sat down and said, God, you have, you've come after us. We didn't come after you. You came after us. 
And that's true in our lives as well as the church. David sat and he worshiped because he was reflecting on the gospel, the idea that there's good news, that faith comes not by good works, but by placing trust and faith in the Messiah. And again, he was looking forward and we look back. But David essentially had a Romans chapter 5 sort of perspective. You know, thousands of years before Paul wrote Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And David realized this. We're helpless. We're lost. We are separated. We're unable to affect our redemption and as he meditated on this and, and, and the relentless pursuit of God in his own life and the life of his family, it drove him and compelled him to worship. So we need that in our own lives today. And if you grew up in the church, sometimes I think we don't appreciate the similarities between us and the worst of sinners. And we, we, we were fundamentally hopeless without hope. And in the infinite cost of sacrificing his own son, God sacrificed Christ to forgive our sins. And this is an invitation to us, uh, not because we were good people growing up, not because we did something, not because we were pretty good folks that deserved salvation, because that's simply not the biblical picture as we're compared to a holy and perfect and righteous God. The truth is the Holy Spirit went after you with relentless pursuit. If you're not saved and you're here lost today, the Holy Spirit has brought you here for the purpose of you getting saved in order that you would be able to know God, to have your sins forgiven and have eternal life. You're not here by chance. You're not here by luck. You're not here by some random event. But God is in control and he's given you an opportunity, a gift of salvation that you can receive Christ today and be eternally saved and have a home in heaven and avoid hell for eternity. The Lord loves you. He loves us all. That is the message of the Bible. But I also want to really drive home this this other perspective here in verse 23. Let me read verse 23 again. It says that what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you. David talking to God, and it says, in awesome things for your land. It's not our land. It's not our church. It's not our lives. He says, we, we want to do awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. And obviously, I'm emphasizing this repetition of the divine pronoun, the personal pronoun, your and I love the fact that David used the word awesome because he was, you know, he was the original guy that, you know, grew up uh, saying, God, you're awesome. So it's a biblical concept. And by the way, we still have some more of these cool be the church bracelets back there. If you hadn't got one, grab one on your way out. And if you give one away or you want another, make sure you grab one of those. David said, God, you're awesome. I need a be the church bracelet to show that you're awesome, to keep it real. And David was um, saying, God, you have redeemed us for, so that we can do awesome things for you. 
We don't come to church for what we can get out of it only. I mean, we need to be recharged, and I appreciate that. You come to get recharged. You come to get encouraged. You come to get something that will spur your Christian growth, and we do that. But we come for ultimately so that we will have a life that is oriented, is centered upon worshiping God. We're not just soaking and soaking and soaking and soaking and getting more and more and more just so we have the ability to answer Bible trivia facts. we got to burst out of here and do something for God and say, God, we want to live for you because of what you've done for us. We're your people. The world is your land. It's not the United States that's the land of God. It's the world. It's the kingdom of God in the world. And so we have an obligation to be ambassadors and missionaries to the world. And not only the United States. That's what the text is telling us. And it's saying we are to put God at the center of our church. We are a God-centered church. It is clear to see in 2 Samuel 7, verse 23, that we are to be a God-centered church full of God-centered people. Realizing that ultimately, ultimately our salvation was for God's glory. Not just so we can go to heaven. In Isaiah 43 and verse 6 and 7 summarizes this by saying, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. And that's everybody that God ever made. In whom I have created. God created you. You are not an accident. You are not because your parents decided to have a family. You have been created by God for his glory. Everyone whom I have created for my glory. And I want to I want to address an issue because some people have actually thought, well, if it's all about God and God is saying it's all about my glory. Does that mean that God is self-centered? Does that mean that God is, is sort of selfish, that he wants it to all be about him? And I want to set this Correct in your own mind today, because the biblical answer to the question, is God selfish, is unequivocally no. God is not selfish. God is completely unselfish. And here's why. I want to explain this to you. The correct understanding of the Bible is that God is triune. He is a trinity. And what that means is that God is one essence with three persons in what we would call the, the, the Trinity or the Godhead. There's not three gods, there's one God. But three persons in one essence. And so the biblical teaching is the unity of the Godhead means that the, the Son of God is eternal. Before Jesus was born, he existed. He is the divine son of God. He himself has the same mind as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They have one will. They don't get together and have staff meetings and try to discuss uh, what they should do. That's a low view of God. God is one. And the mind of the Father is the same as the mind of the Son of God as it is for the Holy Spirit. What the Father wanted, what the Father willed, the will of God was that people be redeemed. And he did not send someone else to die for your salvation. He died himself. 
So when people say it was not fair that Jesus had to die for our sins, that was the plan of God. God himself died for our redemption. And that proves that he is always working in your best self-interest, that he is the Romans 8.28 God. It proves he's not self-centered in seeking his own worship. But there's a, a second area to this I want to just point out to you, and that is this. God set his glory as our first priority, that it would not prevent us from sinning and have the spiritual death that comes from sinning. And we need to understand what sin, clear, clearly what sin is. We need to understand clearly what sin is. Sin is not preferring ourselves over others. Sin at its very core is this. It is preferring something that is finite, that God created over God who is infinite and the supreme value. Any sin in your life is preferring something that is created and if God allowed us to seek anything other than himself and his honor and glory and worship, he would, in fact, be allowing us to commit the sin of idolatry. And we would be, in other words, making a created thing something that should be only uh, reserved for the supreme value. That's why, for example, you can actually be in idolatry by worshiping a child. It's a created thing. You know, Brad, praise God, has just had this beautiful little daughter, Lacey. We, we give glory to God for the safe birth of Lacey. But if Brad makes Lacey an idol, you know, something that is the most important thing in his life, then he is actually committing idolatry because he is preferring something that is created over something that's infinite in the supreme value, which is God himself. And it will destroy that child, by the way. Because that child can't live up. She's not a little God. And it will also destroy that family. That's why it's, God is saying it is in your best self-interest for you to determine that you are going to live for my glory. Because it will keep you from the destruction that comes from all the idols in our life. I hope that makes sense to you. But what it really means is that the, we need to understand God is completely unselfish in his nature. He is not self-centered. He's working in our best self-interest by saying, live for my glory and everything else will fall into your place. That's why I made you to start with. That's using the owner's manual and doing life the way the creator created us. It also explains why Jesus, when he was asked, you know, what is the first great commandment? To and Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor is the second commandment. The implication being, if we reverse those two and we actually love our neighbor before we love God, we are, in fact, having uh, the sin of idolatry and worshiping our created neighbors. So God is unselfish, and he is unselfish in his interest for you. And here's the bottom line. God loves you for your own sake, not for what he can get out of you. That's why God is saying to you, I don't need your worship. You need my worship. That's what God is saying. The Bible says in 1 John 4.10 that this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves you. He loves you personally. He loves you by name. And he's unselfish in his love, not because you're going to give something to him. 
And that should drive us to worship. That makes me want to worship God. And especially if you consider the the love and sacrifice and unselfishness of God relative to the fact he is he is a God of justice. God had a very uh, clear right to demand justice against the sins of humanity. He had the right to say in my life, David, I can demand payment of your sin against my my rules, against my law. He had the right to demand justice for your sins, and that should bring us to the eighth reason to worship the Lord, God's mercy. Praise God rescued you from bondage and released you into a life of eternal purpose. And at the end of verse 23, it says, Your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. We talked about how Egypt is a picture of spiritual Bondage. So you have, in fact, and I have in Christ been rescued, spiritually rescued at the point of salvation. We were in bondage. You say, well, I was just an eight or nine year old kid at VBS. In, in terms of God's perspective, judi- judicially, legally, he had the right to prosecute us for our sins against him in order to Ensure justice was brought to all the creation, and instead, he offered us mercy in Christ. We were set free. We were set free in mercy in order to worship, and his mercy compels us to say, I just love you, Lord, you've rescued me. And you brought me into your your family. This week, uh, Noel and I went over to Columbiana to uh, just encourage and love on and, and also to watch and see what the, praise, the uh, mission team was doing on uh, the mission project this week. And first of all, I just want to stop and say thank you so much, folks, that were on our mission team this year. We are so thankful for you, and we just uh, say thank you. Yeah, give them a round of applause. And I was, I was blown away. I mean, it's really, really impressive when you haven't seen it and you just kind of walk in and you're like, so what do you guys do? And I mean, it's it's amazing uh, just the professional quality of carpentry work and all the different um, things they were building. Essentially, what they were doing was building a church that's an old church. They're actually remodeling it, renovating a church in uh, near Columbiana in Shelby County. And um, it was, again, just a huge effort on our part, men and women, to do this all week. And the pastor there, his name is Grady Coven, Coven, and Grady, Brother Grady was telling us a little bit about his heart. And basically his heart is to reach people that have addictions because he came, he is coming out of being an alcoholic. So he got a heart for addiction and people that are, have really struggled with addiction. And it was a beautiful thing to see him. He bought this old church, and now we're coming alongside him to encourage them by just doing all this work. And next week, Kevin's going to be working on a, a, either a slideshow or some pictures to show you what we're talking about. We didn't have time to get it ready, but it'll be something to look forward to for next week. But Pastor Grady was saying that, uh, you know, my heart is for people that have addiction to sin. And I said, brother, we're all addicted to sin. Because I've been reading this verse here, it says that we were, we were in Egypt. And we were worshiping the gods of Egypt and other nations that were not the true gods. The biblical picture is that we were rescued from addiction to false gods, every single one of us. Some of those gods had names like materialism. 
reputation. You know, if I want, if my reputation in the community becomes my God, that's an idol of our own making. Pleasure, careerism, climbing the career ladder is the most important thing in your life. In fact, it was a beautiful story because um, Eddie Larry and I were sitting around talking to some of the other men, and, we, and, and, and I'm looking for Brother Eddie. I don't see you, but uh, he was around here this morning, and he may be out there. But I said, Brother uh, Grady, why, uh, why did, did it finally click with you? Because he said for years and years, his wife, every Sunday would say, I really want you to go to church with me, and, and I'm praying for you. And every Sunday he would just stay home. There you are, Brother. And uh, he and uh, I said, brother, I, as a pastor, I need to understand what happened, because he said one day he was driving down the road and he finally just pulled over and he and he just opened his heart and life and surrendered fully to the lordship of Christ. And it radically changed him and after years and years and years of his wife preaching or probably preaching, but praying and also uh, uh, just asking and begging him. And I don't know what was going on there, but the point being. And this is by way of encouragement. If you've got somebody in your life like that, don't give up on them. But as a pastor, I'm fascinated by, okay, so finally one day, because I'm constantly fishing. Boosh, I'm not catching anything. Boosh, people are like, you're not going to catch anything. Give up. And then I come across a guy like Brother Grady, and he says, one day I pulled over and gave my heart and life to Christ. And now he's a pastor of a church. He's buying an old church, fixing it up for people like him. And I said, Why? What changed? And it, it blew my mind because I was thinking it was going to be something. He said, I, I, my, he said, I always wanted to have a career that reached a certain place in the company I was in. And I was very successful. And I was working my way up the career ladder. And a guy got put in charge of me and my boss, who was a guy that I'd had a conflict with years before. And he basically ruined my life, demoted me, and, and put me in a place where I lost all of my standing in the company. And he said, I realized that God of careerism had disappointed me, so I decided to give my life to Christ instead. And what I'm saying is, if you look back in your own life, and you think about our propensity in certain areas of sin, we've all been rescued from a death spiral. We're like airplanes. We were spiraling out of control. And when you give your life to Christ, He takes control of the aircraft and keeps you from crashing your life into a fiery ball of destruction and pain. And those around you. And it's mercy. It's the mercy of God. And you need to sit under a tree somewhere. You need to take this hand out and go sit under a tree and think about the mercy of God to you. And who shared Christ with you? It wasn't because we were just lucky to have been born into some Christian family. Somebody loved you and they cared about you. And we are obliged to have that kind of mercy on people. And to worship God. And to see it's a privilege to be in part of the church. We don't come to the church for what we can get out of it. We come saying, God, we want to worship you because it's a privilege to have been saved. And now I want to take that same saving message to the world. And that's God's heart for you. He, you are a, a brick in the house of God God is building the church in the New Testament. And we are the temple of God. He's in our hearts and he's with us when we come together. This is what the Apostle Peter 
wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Look at this verse. And this is to the church. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, church, for a holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Look at verse 9 and following. Ridgecrest, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why, Lord? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not because we performed our way into the kingdom of heaven, but because of the power of God. And this is our last promise, our last reason. Reason number nine, God's power holds you eternally secure with unconditional love and acceptance from a personal God. Look at verse 24. For you have established for yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. It's not us bragging on God. It's us worshiping God because he has been merciful and powerful enough to let us enjoy his presence and accept us for who we are and to be able to say he's our God. What I'm saying to you is that God is holding your eternal salvation and it's not based on your good works. Jesus brought this out in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John very clearly. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. Eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And what that says to you is, and that no one up there, guess what? No one can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus, including yourself. And I thank God for that. And it compels me to worship The power of God is eternally secure with unconditional love and acceptance from a personal God. This is our God. You, O Lord, have become our God at Ridgecrest. And it makes us want to worship you, God. He's present. He's personal. He's not far off. He's here with us. He's in your heart. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Last night, yesterday afternoon, I put my mother into Crimson Village Memory Care Unit. After living in her house for since 1972, that was hard. And I left her saying, God is with you. He is your God. That's the message that God is giving to us today. Whatever crisis you're going through, whatever difficulty you're going to, whether it's today or in the future, God is our God. He will be with you and he will never leave us. He's indescribable. I'm trying to describe him to you and I can't find the words to say He's indescribable, but he's worthy of worship. 
He's worthy of worship because he has unending love. I'll let you take that off the screen, guys. We went back to the beginning. We had, two Sundays ago, we started out with the love of God. God's love is unending. It elevates us from spiritual shame into the royal family. We are princes and princesses in the family of God. By the love of God, our God is a love of undeserved. He loves us with undeserved kindness. This is our God. He's the God of unmerited grace. We didn't earn his grace. The Bible says, for by grace, you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. That's unmerited grace. Our God is a God of unfailing faithfulness. His word is true. All the promises in Scripture, the Bible says, are yes and amen to us. Our God is unbelievably good. He's the master artist. He's the Romans 8:28 artist. When you commit today, I'm going to live for the glory of God. He takes your life. He takes the paintbrush out of your hand and he's, he begins to work your life into a masterpiece where every single thing is for your good. He's fundamentally unselfish. He's unbelievably good. He's uniquely great. Only Christ could save you. No other world religion can save you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No person comes to the Father except through me. He's uniquely capable of your salvation. He's uniquely great. He's unequivocally unselfish. He's unceasingly merciful. His mercy is new every day. That's our God. Our God has unlimited power. And right now, if you're a believer, if you've given your heart and your, to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's holding you in nail-scarred hands. And as for me, I want to worship him. So I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer. And before we go any further, I want to give anybody here a chance to become a Christian today, to become a born-again, saved Christian, but... What that means is you can have eternal life. And it really just simply is coming by giving your heart and your life, all of who you are, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you sit there, just in your heart of hearts, if you just pray a simple prayer, say, Oh, dear Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I have sinned against you, and I need your forgiveness. And right now, I give you my life. I open up my, my, all of who I am to follow you, to be a follower of Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Save me, Lord Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I promise to follow you. Let me be a part of your church and live for you. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.